Well, good morning, New Life. Welcome, welcome. Look at our look at our new set we got. We got some we got our plants back here and uh, we got some fancy lights. We even have a second camera. So we got camera two here as well. So we got all kinds of different options here and we're gonna be uh, having some fun and uh, looking forward to, to what God has in store for us this morning. So we're gonna be in Ephesians chapter three for the first time. And uh, we're gonna be looking at, um, at really the character, the writer of this book, the Apostle Paul. It, uh, at this point here, he's, he's sort of reintroducing himself kind of one third of the way through the letter. And uh, you might be wondering, well, why are we even bothering? Why are we even looking at this, this person, the Apostle Paul? Uh, you know, what does someone who lived and died nearly 2,000 years ago have to say to you and I in these uncertain, unprecedented, unforeseen, unexpected, unusual, uneasy, uncharted waters of this chaos? Well, I use all those terms that you've probably heard over and over again because it seems like every communication begins with that phrase or those phrases, those words. But the reality is, Paul has a lot to say to you and I. Because right now, as we're, as we're dealing with this COVID-19, every one of us, our world has been flipped upside down in, in some way. Uh, for some of you, your kids are home now all the time, and you're struggling to try and do work from home while look after these little kids, and, and they can't go and play at the park. They can't go with their friends and so forth, and so you're struggling with that. Maybe, maybe you're struggling not being able to visit with your friends and your family, uh, and you're missing that, that regular social interaction that just happened day to day. But maybe you're struggling with addictions. That this isolation has led to, to boredom, led to loneliness, and so you're coping with some unhealthy ways of coping, with some addictions and so forth. Or maybe you're worried because your work has been cut back, and now you're working part-time. Or maybe you're out of work entirely, and so you're worried about how we're going to pay the bills, and, and, and you're worried about uh, how you're going to pay for things. And, or, or maybe you're worried just about catching COVID-19 and passing it along to, to someone who's got a, a weaker immune system that can lead them to being sick. Maybe you're frustrated with the response um, and think it's being all overblown or the lack of response from some people that they're not taking it seriously. Or maybe, maybe you've run out of toilet paper finally and run out of shows on Netflix to watch. Again, I'm, I'm kind of joking on that one, but, but the reality is it's not if we're facing a crisis. The reality is every one of us is facing a crisis of some sort, of some kind. The thing I find interesting about crises, though, is what they do is they tend to expose someone. They, they expose us for who we really are, much more so than in when everything's easy. See, when everything's easy, it just looks easy. Everything looks fine. It, nothing really gets shown to, to have a problem. For example, think about the, uh, the, the story that Jesus told about the, the two houses, one built on a solid rock and one built on sand. You know, on, on a bright, beautiful, sunny day, you know, you really couldn't tell the difference between these two houses. In fact, I kind of think the one on, on sand might be nicer. It's closer to the water. And, and so on a beautiful, calm, sunny day, everything's great on both houses. But when the storm comes, when the, the winds pick up and the rain begins to fall, what ends up happening now is the foundation is exposed. It's exposed as being weak, as in the case of the sand, or it's exposed as being strong in the case of the one built on a solid rock. 
And so that's the beauty of these, these crises is they expose our foundation. They expose what we're trusting in and what we're depending upon. And, and we saw that in the life of Peter. Remember the night that Peter was arrested? And, and that night, you know, up to that moment, he was bragging, I'm going to trust you, God. I'm with you, and I'm never going to betray you. I'm never going to abandon you. And sure enough, three times that night, he, he turned his back. He, he rejected God. He rejected Jesus, knowing Jesus. And so what was exposed in Peter is that his, his bravado didn't match his actions. And, and he experienced that humility. But what was great about that crisis is it led to change. And that's what's so beautiful. But when we recognize that there's an issue, we recognize there's a struggle, then it can lead to us to making better choices. And it leads to a change now where we, we're willing and we're able to trust God in a whole new way. And, and so we see something now also in the life of Paul. The, the great apostle Paul, he, he you know, wrote much of the New Testament, including this letter to the Ephesians that were struggling. And so I thought it would be great to kind of pause and to look at this, this man, this person uh, that we're, we're studying and seeing how a crisis in his life learned, or taught him how to, to learn to, to live life differently and see how that could apply to you and I this, this morning as well. So we're going to read Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. And uh, you can read along with me if you want. Uh, so Paul here, he writes, For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, and that by revelation there has been made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. All right, let's pray. Father, we're looking forward to what you have in store for us this morning. And we've got all kinds of technology and all kinds of new things going on that we're still trying to learn and adapt to. But ultimately, nothing's changed. You're still our God. You're still in us and you're with us. Your Holy Spirit is ultimately the teacher. And so we thank you that that reality is rock solid. And so we invite you this morning, Holy Spirit, to be the teacher. To, to speak through me and to place the ideas and the thoughts that you want to communicate to all of us, but that you would also then take your truth and make it real to us. Thank you for who you are and how much you love us, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, some of you might be very acquainted with Paul's story. Uh, that's especially true if you're like me and you kind of grew up in the church. I mean, the, the story and the conversion of Paul is like built for Sunday school illustrations and built for flannel graph and everything. So, it, so I've heard those stories so much growing up. But, but maybe, maybe that's all you've heard about the Apostle Paul, uh, just what you learned in Sunday school. Or, or maybe you're newer to the faith and, and you've heard about this Paul character but don't know much about him. And so again, this morning, I thought it would be really important to, to kind of look at this guy. Because the reality is, next to Jesus, the Apostle Paul is the most influential person in the history of Christianity. And so, what I want you to see this morning is more than just a history aspect. What I want us to see this morning is what made him so special. What made him to be used of God in such a powerful, unique way? And, and what can we learn from that? How can we begin to apply that in our own lives? So let's begin with some simple facts. 
Uh, number one, uh, Paul wrote the most number of the, new, uh, of the books in the New Testament. Uh, just under half of the New Testament books written by Paul. And if you, if you attribute the book of Hebrews, as some do, to Paul, then it's more than half. So he is, he's the largest uh, writer in the New Testament. And while I didn't measure it, or don't have a source to measure it, I, I am confident in saying he is the most studied author in all the history of the world. Because the, the commentaries and, and the, the books that have been written on Paul's letters is just too, too much to count. And so he's, he's been studied more than, than Shakespeare, more than Aristotle, more than Plato, more than Tolstoy, more than Dr. Zeus even, if you can believe it or not. Right? So he's, he's big time, right? And, and such an influential thinker. And, and while he wasn't present at the, the formation of the, the church at Pentecost or some of the very first churches in and around Jerusalem, he was instrumental in taking the message of the gospel to outside of Israel into all of the known world at that point. And so he's, he's left an incredible mark, not just within Christianity, but within the world at large. So he is he's a huge character. He's made a, he's made a huge impact in this world. But before he was the Apostle Paul, he was actually born as a man named Saul. And, and Saul was born in a city of Tarsus. So Tarsus, if you kind of imagine you know, Israel here on a map, and, and you got the Mediterranean Sea, uh, Tarsus would have been in modern-day Turkey, sort of in the, the, the northeast corner of the Mediterranean Sea, so close to Israel. But Paul, he was, he was Jewish and of the tribe of Benjamin, but born in the city of Tarsus. And what was kind of special about Paul and came into, uh, into a consequence later on in his life is he was actually born a Roman citizen as well, which was a pretty big deal. To be a Roman citizen was a, a much prized citizenship. It, it allowed you all kinds of access and, and um, uh, privileges that you wouldn't have if you weren't. You, you wouldn't be a slave and you were given certain rights as a Roman citizen that you wouldn't be if you were not. And so he was born one. And we don't know what was the, the circumstances in which that happened for him. Uh, because it's not like today where if you're born in the country, you obtain that citizenship. It had to be your parents were Roman citizens. Or you would spend a whole lot of money in order to, to purchase that, that right to be so. And, and it could be either. I mean, the reality is Tarsus was a very well-off city. It was a very strategic city when it came to um, the various trading and the ports and so forth because of its location and its access into the Far East from, from Rome. And so maybe, maybe Paul was born in a wealthy family and they were able to purchase that citizenship. Or maybe they were gifted it, again, being in the, the city of Tarsus. Uh, regardless, he had it. And... Um, and Paul talks about himself. He says he was very smart, uh, very knowledgeable. And, and you see that in his writings. Uh, he, he writes in some ways uh, as the, you know, a gifted lawyer and so forth, making arguments and cases and so forth. Uh, I'm not sure if it's still the case today, but I was told in some of the Ivy League schools, they would use the Book of Romans to teach logic. So you can see the logical mind uh, of the Apostle Paul. But what's interesting, in a number of places in his letters, he actually, also in the book of Acts, he actually says he wasn't a very good speaker, that he wasn't skilled in that sense. And so, I, you know, I find that very interesting. I can relate to one of those. I'm not a very good speaker either. So it's neat to see that, you know, Paul wasn't superhuman. He didn't have everything, but he had something special, as hopefully we begin to see. 
Now, although he was born in Tarsus, he actually grew up in Jerusalem. So at a very young age, his family moved to Jerusalem. And, and I think that, that set uh, the trajectory for Paul early on. Because Jerusalem was the center of religious life in, for Israel. I mean, that's where the temple was. And so what Paul did is he joined the group called the Pharisees. And, and the Pharisees, Paul says here, even in there, he was according to the strictest sect of their religion. So he was very devout, very serious, very sincere about his faith, um, wanting to make sure that he honored God and loved God as best he could. And so what Paul did is he ended up finding himself a rabbi. Now, a rabbi is a Jewish word for teacher. And this is what you would do is you would find a mentor. You would find a teacher. The disciples would do that with Jesus. They had Jesus as their rabbi. Well, for Paul growing up, his rabbi was a man named Gamaliel. And Gamaliel was a leading Jew on the council at that time. And that was the big time. The council was a seat of power. It was, it was sort of like the cabinet of, of the government. And, and so Gamaliel was a well-respected, very influential man on this council. And Paul had him as his rabbi, as his mentor. It'd be kind of like, for example, having uh, one of the CEOs of, of you know, Google or Apple or uh, you know, IBM or GE, someone like you know, big time being your own mentor, meaning he had access and was on, on a path to power. And he was being groomed to one day kind of replace Gamaliel and to be on that council and to have all that kind of influence. So to kind of summarize this, the, you know, Paul before salvation, he kind of summarizes it for us in Philippians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. And so he says this about himself, that he was, he was circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrews of Hebrews, as to law he was a Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness which is in the law, he was found blameless. So you can see he was, he was the ideal Jew. I mean, Jewish mothers around the world would have wanted their, their daughters to marry Paul, right? Because he was just so perfect, so ideal, <clears throat> destined for greatness, destined for privilege, destined to be this powerful leader within Israel. Well, while Paul was still a young man living in Jerusalem, there was this other guy who was traveling all over Israel, teaching and performing miracles, and he went by the name of Jesus of Nazareth. So Paul was younger than Jesus. I, I'm estimating he was about 10 years younger. Uh, that's my guess. Uh, because we read in the book of Acts, he says about himself that he was still a young man. So I'm guessing he was probably in his 20s when Jesus was in his early 30s. And he was, um, we don't have any record of him being present and meeting Jesus, but for sure he would have known about what was going on. Especially sitting under Gamaliel, he would have heard about this Jesus, heard about the uproar and the ruckus, and he would have had an opinion. The first time we meet Paul is at the stoning of Stephen. And we see him there, and he says that he was a young man, and, and he was very angry in his own words. And although he didn't have a, I can't sure if he had a vote or not, but he was all in favor of Stephen being stoned. And so what happened is when they went out to the city to, city to stone Stephen, the first Christian martyr, he was there to guard the coats so no one made sure that, you know, no one run out, run off with anything as they put Stephen to death. And so he was, he didn't participate in throwing a stone, but he participated in terms of his, his uh, willingness to see Stephen die. And that moment, everything changed. Up to that moment, 
there was some mild persecution going on, but this was the moment where everything, everything was different. And so now it was open game on any Christian. And you can be in prison, you can be beaten, you might even be, be murdered um, uh, or, or um, executed, much like Stephen was. And so what Saul does now is after Stephen's execution, he is motivated. And he seeks out the high priest, the, the most powerful man in Israel, and he seeks permission, seeks these letters, essentially arrest warrants, so that he could travel to Damascus and arrest any follower of Jesus there, any Christian. Now, it's kind of interesting because if you pull up a map, you've got Jerusalem, which is sort of two-thirds south in Israel, and Damascus is, is way at the top. It's actually in Syria. And so it's a bit, it's in the northern, northern part of Israel. And so it seems odd that Paul would go all the way up there to arrest these Christians. But I think what it does is it shows us two things. One, it shows us the zeal that Paul had. Again, in his own words, he talks about how angry and how furious he was with these people. Because in his mind, these people, they were, they were more than just traitors. They were blaspheming his God. And he wanted, the other thing is he wanted to do damage. I mean, here it is. He says, I want to do damage to the name of Jesus. So I think he wanted to go up to Damascus to send a message. Basically saying, nowhere safe. If I'm willing to go up to Damascus, you're not safe anywhere. So you might as well nix this thing. You better abandon this Jesus guy, come back to the temple. And so he was motivated and so determined. And so he, he grabs a few men to go up there. And, and while he's just outside the city of Damascus, it says at noon, a bright light came. And this bright light now blinds him and blinds everyone to kind of just, you know, fall to the ground and they hear this great voice. Now, the, the men with him, they hear the, the voice, but they don't understand it. Sort of like I imagine like when Jesus is being baptized and, and God spoke, this is my beloved son. It kind of sounded like thunder to everyone else. So I, I kind of imagine that was the case here, that they're hearing noise, they're hearing thunder. But Paul heard it exactly. And, and he hears this voice that cries out to him in Acts 9, verses 4 to 6. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul cries out, who are you, Lord? And he says to him, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Get up and enter the city and he'll be told to you what, must, what you must do. Think about that for a moment. Just, just imagine what Paul is thinking in this moment. He's dedicated at this point his whole life to persecuting the followers of Jesus to destroy the name of Jesus. And then to have this encounter with God and find out that Jesus is in fact God. I mean, in this moment, everything must be just being shocked for him for three days. For three days, he's, he's sitting in this, the city of Damascus. He's not eating. He's not drinking. I, I imagine he's barely seeing. He's blind now. He can't see anything. And so his mind is probably just, just racing and racing and racing, trying to figure out, what do I do? I mean, is that a crisis, a crisis of faith? Because for him now to, to acknowledge that Jesus is in fact Lord, is in fact God, would mean to turn his back on everything he's had up to that moment in his life. To turn his back on, on his faith, the, the temple, uh, the, his family. To, to go from being the hunter 
now being the hunted. So the, the weight and the pressure and the cost that Paul is facing now is just immense. And he's blind. And I think that's such a great picture, by the way. Because, you know, his blindness, physical, really is just simply a reality of what his soul has been up to this moment. Up to this moment, his whole life, he's been blinded to the truth that Jesus is the Messiah. He didn't recognize that. He didn't know that. He didn't see that. And so now he's blind to that until he meets a man named Ananias. And so, so God now instructs Paul to, to seek out this man named Ananias who lives on Straight Street and, and to go find this man. And as, as God's saying that to Paul, God's also speaking to Ananias saying, this man named Saul from Tarsus is coming. Now you can imagine Ananias, because at this point, Saul of Tarsus, he has a reputation. He's famous. He's the number one hunter of, of any of the followers of Jesus. And so Ananias is probably terrified. He's coming after me. I'm going to get arrested. I'm going to get beaten. Maybe, maybe I'm going to die. And God says to Ananias, he's coming. And I want you to invite you in the, him into your home. And I want you to lay hands on him and restore sight to him. And Ananias is like, argue with God. This is great. You're not the only one that argues with God from time to time. God, you're crazy. God, this is not the right plan. So he's arguing with God, and God says, I know it doesn't seem right to you, but listen, I've got a plan for you. And so in Acts 9, verses 15 and 16, he, he tells us what his plan is. Listen to what he says. The Lord says to Ananias, Go, for he is my chosen instrument. He's a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. So that's what he's going to do. He's going to be an instrument of God, being used of God to, to share the name of Jesus to Gentiles, to kings, to even Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. What an incredible moment this is. When he, he comes in and, and Ananias lays hands on, on Paul, restores his sight, and he's now baptized. And, and the Saul of Tarsus becomes Paul, a new man, a, a believer of Jesus Christ now. The hunter becomes the hunted, but the lost is now found. The unrighteous is made righteous apart from the law. Beautiful. And, and I always think this is such an incredible story because just imagine if, if a week before this, if, if you were to say to the followers of Christ, if you were to grab the disciples and say, you know that Saul of Tarsus guy? In a week from now, he's going to be on track to become the most influential man in Christianity. He's going to be responsible as the greatest teacher, the, the person that takes the gospel the furthest. I mean, if you were the followers of Jesus, you'd have heard this and you thought, what are you talking about? There's no way that's going to happen. This guy's dangerous. This guy's brutal. He's the enemy of Christ. But you see, a week before, the story wasn't over yet. That's, that's where things were in the story of Saul of Tarsus. A week later, he was going to meet Jesus and come to faith. And I say that because each of us, we all, we all know loved ones who are in the midst of a crisis where everything seems to be so bleak and so dark. Maybe you're that loved one. 
Maybe you're feeling like this is such a dark moment right now. I feel alone and isolated and unsure and, and scared. And, and I just don't know how, how can this be good? What good can come from all this, from this difficult time? But the good news is the story is not over yet. God's working. God's present. And he knew the exact moment to fall, to reveal himself, and to, to bring Paul to faith, to transform this man, to use a moment of crisis to make it into a moment of transformation. And so our story is not over yet. And maybe we're in this dark moment. But God's working, and He's going to use this darkness, He's going to use this difficult crisis as a moment <clears throat> to bring about a transformation. Well, now Paul begins. And I want to do a brief summary of the rest of the life of Paul. And, and when I was kind of preparing this, I thought, well, I don't want this to be just boring history. And so I thought, well, maybe, maybe what I could do is I could present this kind of like what Olaf did, you know, the snowman Olaf in Frozen 2. Remember when he did the recap of Frozen 1? And if you're, if you're a parent of young kids, I'm sure you have blown through all the Disney movies already by now. So you might probably know what I'm talking about. Uh, if you don't, then just ignore me. Uh, go back to your Lucky Charms or your Raisin Bran. Um, so I thought about doing it that way. And then I remembered I'm not good at impersonations. So I'm not going to do that to you. So, But I do want to give you a brief rundown of it. So immediately after salvation, Paul begins to go through all of Damascus and he begins to preach the gospel. Immediately, And I kind of imagine that over those three days of blindness, you know, all the pieces, all of his, what he learned, they're all kind of falling into place now. And he's starting to come to realize, oh, this is what's true. Oh, that's what's true. And, and he's starting to come to terms and realize of the, the truth of who Jesus was and all the prophecies. And, and so now he's going, he's sharing how, how this passage in the Psalms and, and, and this prophecy in Ezekiel, that was pointing to Jesus. And he's sharing that with all the Jews. And all the Jews are getting angry and upset with him, just like he was angry and upset. And so they began to plot things. They were waiting at the gate to find him. And it got so bad that his friends now, some people who, who Paul began to partner with, they had to let him down over the wall in a basket just so he could escape. And so he flees to Arabia, and then he comes back to Damascus about three years later. And he's just kind of hanging there. I'm not sure how long he was in Arabia for. Again, it says three years, but it could have been he was there in Arabia for a short time and then in Damascus. But for three years, he's kind of laying low. Now, many scholars at this point, they, they kind of speculate that while he was in Arabia, in particular in the desert, he had an encounter with Jesus and he met with Jesus. And Jesus sort of gave him a, a, a seminary course on the new covenant. I don't know if that's the case or not. That's just mere speculation. We have no, no reasons to, to suspect that. But nonetheless, after three years in Arabia and Damascus, he finally returns to Jerusalem. And you can imagine now, this is the first time he sets foot in Jerusalem, but now is a follower of Jesus. And so people have been hearing the stories about this guy named Saul of Tarsus, now going by the name of Paul, who's, who's preaching the gospel, but he's still got the reputation of the hunter. And so everyone's terrified. No one wants to, to meet with this guy. You know, least of all the disciples, the apostles of this now, Peter and John, they're all scared until a man named Barnabas. And he meets Paul and he vouches for him. Oh, that's so beautiful. 
I mean, think about the power. Of, while, while Paul is the most influential man, maybe, maybe he has no opportunity to do that until Barnabas vouched for him. So Barnabas laid everything on the line to support Paul. And he says, yeah, this guy's legit. And so he meets with the other apostles and he says, this is what I've been learning. And he shares the new covenant with these guys. And they're listening to it. They're listening to it. And it says that they neither added nor subtracted anything that Paul had to say. In fact, Peter goes on to vouch for him in one of his letters saying that everything that Paul says, although it's difficult at times to comprehend, amen, it's all true. It's all legit. And so he's got the blessing of Peter. And so he's there for a little bit. And, uh, but then again, he's causing trouble, right? Because he's preaching the gospel. And so they send him home now. They, they kind of send him off to Tarsus by way of Caesarea. And he stays there for a little while. We don't know how many years, but he stays there for a little while until eventually Barnabas goes and he finds him and he brings him back to a town of Antioch, which is kind of in the northern part of Israel as well. And, uh, and so he stays there for one year where Paul and Barnabas are teaching the church. Oh, that must have been so beautiful. For one year, he's just, he's laying out the new covenant, laying out what, what a community of grace looks like and how we get to in- interact and love one another and all that Jesus has done for us. And, and so the church of Antioch becomes such a powerful place. And while he and Barnabas and everyone is just hanging out, suddenly now he feels this desire. Him and Barnabas and those around them all feel this call that Paul and Barnabas are to be set aside and go on a missionary journey. And so, so Paul goes on actually three missionary journeys with a number of people. You know, one, the first one was Barnabas. Other ones he went on with Silas and Titus and Timothy and, and John Mark and, and Luke and so many other people. He goes on these three different missionary journeys all across the the Roman world, establishing churches, building up these churches, supporting these churches. And and suddenly now Christianity begins to grow. And we read about this in the story of Acts and all that he went through. But remember what God said about him. That yes, he was going to go and proclaim the name of Jesus to Gentiles, to kings, and to the sons of Israel. But he was also going to suffer. And he's going to suffer great things. And so... 2 Corinthians 11, they they give us a a list of of what he went through. And so listen to some of the things that he's gone through. He's went through imprisonments. He was was beaten for more times than he could remember. Five times he received from the Jews the 39 slashes. In fact, they believed that 40 would kill a man. So basically, they beat him to an inch of his life five times. Three separate times he was beaten with rods. Once he was stoned, and the reason they stopped stoning him was because they thought he was dead. And, and so he, what was so cool about this is, is after they were stoned, his friends came and, and helped him up. Next day, he walks back into the city and says, hey, didn't work, and then leaves. I just love the bravado of that. Three times he was shipwrecked. A day and a half he was lost at sea. Uh, so he's in the water, you know, holding on to a plank of wood. Hungry, Risking his life with robbers and in the wilderness and betrayal, always on the move. Plus, he had the weight of the leadership of all these churches, everything they're going through, and, and caring for so many people when they were struggling or were caught in some kind of sin. All of that is weighing on his heart. And, and this list we have here is just a partial list. See, he came up with this list when he was halfway through or partway through his ministry. There was more to come, the imprisonment in Rome and so forth. Well, 
that imprisonment with Rome now that takes place because he goes back to the temple and and he's in the temple and he's he's arrested. And and what they want to do is they want to kill him at this point. They wanted to arrest him and, 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 and execute him. And they were about to, but he mentions now that he was a, he was a Roman citizen. Remember how I said that would come in, into play later on? Well, it saves his life. Because a Roman commander overhears that this is happening, that the Jews are ready to execute and kill a Roman citizen, and he, he can't let that happen. He's got to protect them. That's his job. And so he comes to his aid and protects him. And he says, you got to, let's, let's find out what's going on. So basically they put him on trial. And what's beautiful in Acts 22, Paul now is given this platform to speak to the Jewish leaders, to the council, to the high priest, and begin to explain the gospel to them. So beautiful. And, he, and he's beginning to share the gospel. And what's interesting is they were listening up until the moment he says, and that the gospel was going to go to the Gentiles. That, that was too much. That was too far. And so this was the moment they're like, kill him, kill him. In fact, 40 men swore an oath that they would not eat or drink until Saul was dead, until Paul was dead. So again, the Roman guard, Roman uh, centurion, he gets word of this. Uh, and so he, the Roman commander, he says, we've got to protect him. So he gets 200 soldiers, 70 men on horseback, and another 200 spearmen. I mean, that's a small army here to protect guy and now he sneaks him out of Israel, takes him to Caesarea where he can now meet the, the governor of Israel. This is the, the man that, that Rome has sort of appointed to look after the province of Israel, this Roman governor named Felix. And so he's there for two years meeting with Paul and Paul sharing the gospel with him over and over again. Well, eventually Felix is replaced with a man named Fetus, and Fetus is a new governor, and King Agrippa, again, that king would have been Jewish, but he was just a figurehead, a puppet of Rome, he was appointed by Rome, just sort of keeping the Israelites happy, basically, and so he meets with Fetus, and he's like, tell me about this Paul guy, and again, Paul gets, in Acts 26, gets to present the gospel to Roman leaders. Remember, he's fulfilling the prophecy, presenting the gospel to kings. And, and they're hearing it, and they're listening to it, and they say, well, we can't really find any fault with him, but he's appealed to Caesar, so we're going to send him to Caesar. So they send him to Rome now. And again, he meets with the, the now he's meeting with the, the Roman Caesar, the emperor. Think about this. Paul is meeting with the most important person in all of the world at this point, the most powerful person. And what's he sharing? He's talking about Jesus. And while we don't, we don't see any evidence of Caesar coming to faith, there are people in his household who did. So you, you can see how God's using the crisis. He's reaching people that never would have heard it. In fact, while he's imprisoned in Rome, he's writing many letters, including the book of Ephesians that we're studying. So this, this crisis, this imprisonment, was opportunities that God was using to do incredible things. I mean, I, I kind of think that if Paul wasn't in prison in Rome, then we never have this opportunity to read this book because he's probably too busy traveling. He's too busy meeting with people. But because he is in prison, he's got time. And so he's dictating these letters to go out that make up the New Testament for us. So we can trust this God. We can trust that God is working. Well, after two years in prison in Rome, he's released. Uh, and then that's all we know in the book of Acts. But at some point later, he's arrested again and beheaded 
the that's what the uh, tradition tells us uh, based on the earliest writings in the first in the second century sorry um Historians say that Paul was, was executed, and we suspect it was a beheading at the hands of Nero. And, and so that's the story of Paul, in a nutshell. And it's incredible. But, but that's not what's powerful. That's not nearly the, the biggest takeaway in all that. Those are just the interesting facts. To, to me, what was so amazing about studying the life of Paul was trying to understand the heart of Paul. What, what made him tick? What, what got him out of bed every morning? What was he chasing after? What did, what did he value? Why was he the great apostle Paul? What made him available to God? And, and he tells us in this, this great passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. And so listen to what he says. He says to the, the church there, And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech. Remember, he's not a great orator. He's not a great speaker. <laughs> Hallelujah, there's hope for me. And he didn't even come with clever phrases, right? So he wasn't, he wasn't giving you these cliches or these, these phrases that could be you know, put on Twitter and so forth. That wasn't what it was about. What did he do? He proclaimed to you the testimony of God, of what Jesus did. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. See, he wasn't some superhuman. It's not like he never had a bad day. He never struggled. Oh, no. Oh, no. He was, he was nervous. He was sweating, knees knocking. And my message and my preaching were not persuasive words of wisdom. They weren't clever. But they were in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. They were powerful words. He ministered life. When people, when people heard what Paul was saying, their soul would begin to exhale because they could rest and they had hope. Why? Listen to this one. So that your faith would not rest in the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. That's beautiful. See, I think there are two keys passage, two, two keys to this passage. And, and, and we got a slide for you, and I think it's really powerful that what Paul was all about, he was all about Jesus Christ and the cross. This is what drove him above anything else. It was central to his life. It was central to his ministry. It's all he wanted to talk to. It's all what he wanted to be about. Jesus Christ and the cross. And I think it's so powerful because we, we can neglect the cross part of it. But yet the cross was, was what it was about. Earlier in the passage, in, in chapter 1, Paul says that the cross, the message of the cross, it's the power of God that's saving us today. It's, it's where Jesus was crucified, but also where I was crucified with him. It's where the old me was taken away. It was the old me was crucified so I could become a new me. In Galatians 6 and 14 and 15, Paul talks about this. He talks about how, he says, May I boast in nothing except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I into the world. Because that was it. Because what matters isn't about you know, circumcision or uncircumcision. How you're baptized, uh, what church you go to, whether you speak in tongues or not, whether you give and how much you give, how you meet. None of that what matters. All that matters is that you and I are a new creation. And all of that was done because of the cross. And so that's what motivated Paul. That's what he wanted to convey to people. Here's the truth of the new covenant. And then the second key would be so that they would place their trust in the Holy Spirit. 
not in man, not follow Paul. I wasn't, it wasn't about glorifying himself. He says, don't trust in, in, in the principles and don't trust in what I'm trying to teach you so much as trust in the living God who now resides in you in the person of the Holy Spirit. That's what he keeps coming back to. And for me, that's what I've, I've tried to base my whole ministry on. My whole ministry has been trying to, to share with people the truth of who Jesus is, of, of, of who he is in you, and, and what he's done on the cross to make who you are today your new identity. And to understand who he is in you now. So if I can understand this, this idea of this loving, gracious, powerful God who's available to me in this moment. That I would now trust in that God. That I would live a life of faith each and every moment. That's what I've tried to, to live as best I can. And I'm not perfect. I think I'm up, up, up about to a 23% success right now. I'm, I'm up from 18% six months ago, so I'm, I'm on the move, and so I'm doing better. I think I'm above the Mendoza line, but I'm getting better, and I'm growing. But you know what? It's not about that, because God's not keeping score. It's just about trusting Him right now, in this moment. And so that's what we're trying to, to convey. That's what we're trying to encourage each and every one of us, because it's all about knowing Him. That's it. Listen to what Paul writes in Philippians 3, verses 7 to 11. He says, Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as his loss for the sake of Christ, more than that, I count all things lost in the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. So that I may... Um, Knowing Jesus Christ my Lord, for I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish that I may gain Christ and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know Him, that I may intimately know Him and the power of His resurrection and fellowship and the suffering, His sufferings, being conformed to His death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. See, His heart so what drove Him. I wanted to know Jesus above all else. I wanted to follow Jesus and trust Jesus. And he wanted you and I to follow him as well, to trust Jesus. And what comes of that is so beautiful because what, what Paul naturally would do is, is love people. See, he gave up everything now and invited persecution so as he went around sharing this gospel because what he wanted to do was love people. See, Paul wasn't motivated by greed. It wasn't about, you know, how much more money can I get in this world? Better, better provisions, better possessions, more comfort. That's not what drove him. It wasn't greed. It wasn't glory. I mean, think about it. If he wanted greed and glory, he'd been better off on the path he was. He was on, on the course to being on the council, to be well-respected rabbi, to have the comfort, the riches, the authority. He didn't know that he was going to be this apostle and, and, and that the church would be what it is today. All he knew is he wanted to love people. So it wasn't greed. It wasn't glory. It wasn't even guilt. See, Paul wasn't doing this because he was trying to pay back Jesus. He wasn't like trying to balance the scales. Oh, I'm such a lousy, lousy person. I need to do this and maybe God will be pleased with me for all my sacrifices. 
It wasn't greed. It wasn't, wasn't glory. It wasn't guilt that motivated him. It was love. 2 Corinthians 5.14 says, I'm compelled by the love of God. Because the only thing that matters now is loving people through faith. Faith, trusting in Jesus that produces these acts of love. And that's what he's wanting to do with every one of us. And so we see here that this third aspect, this third key of what drove Paul was this desire to love people. And for others to experience that love through him. So, as he says to us in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, that we're to be imitators of him. Not in deed per se, not in terms of action, that you now need to give up everything and become missionaries and so forth. That, that's not what it is. We're not copying behavior. As the writer of Hebrews tells us, we're to imitate faith. And that's what Paul was wanting, right? Not follow Paul, follow Jesus. And so what is Jesus inviting you to do today? How is he inviting you today, this, this day, this moment right now, this afternoon, to trust him, to, to be a vessel to those around you, to your family? And so let us fix our eyes on that. Let's fix our eyes on this Jesus Christ. Make him the central defining aspect of who we are and what we do. To know him as an intimate way. To know the Lord and God of creation, our Savior, who resides in you right now. And, and maybe what that means is, is I need to exchange some things. Maybe I need to, to let go of some of the goals and the dreams uh, that I've been really chasing after. Maybe your career, maybe some of the comfort uh, that you've been seeking, some healthy and unhealthy ways, maybe the glory that you've been after, maybe some financial security. Not that those are bad necessarily, not that you have to quit your job again, but maybe they aren't to be the central focus of our life. You know, just yesterday I was chatting with, 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 with Joy and, and I was commenting on how, you know, when I was younger, my, my dream was, was cars and I was going to build a race car in my garage. And that was, was what drove me. But I have no interest in that anymore. Not that it's, I don't care about racing, I'll follow it from time to time, but that's not, what, that's not what my heart beats after anymore. My greatest desire is I want to know Jesus. I don't care about the cost. Whatever it is, if Jesus is there, sign me up. That's what I'm after. I want to know him. I want to experience him. I want Jesus to be expressed through me so this world sees Jesus. That I can express the light of God to this lost and dark world. Maybe what you need to exchange is the guilt and shame. The belief that you're so broken. That you're so damaged. Do you realize that 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 damage that you, that you see actually makes you more dangerous and more powerful. That Jesus shows up greater in the darkness that you've been through. That's why Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 12, boasting in his weaknesses, boasting in his struggles and his trials and his tribulations. Because when I'm weak, I become stronger. Because in the darkness, the light of Jesus becomes brighter. What an opportunity every one of us is in today. In this, this difficult time, in this, this crisis of COVID-19, it's an opportunity for the life of Jesus to go brighter. And, and the reality is, as, as the longer we are in this, this lockdown, in this social isolation and physical distancing and so forth, it's going to get darker. 
because people are going to get less patient and shorter with others, and they're going to become meaner to people. But what an opportunity for Jesus in you to love one another. Well, let's keep this conversation going. What I mean by that is, is I want to invite you to, after we sign off here, go join the, the Facebook community page. And, and I've asked Josh, he's going to start a thread there and, and just start to comment, just start to share. If, maybe you've been sharing as I've been speaking, uh, but let's keep the conversation going. And, and a couple things I want you to, to maybe comment on. Number one, uh, share maybe what you've heard. So give me some feedback. Sort of what have you been hearing this morning? What has God been saying to your heart? Uh, That helps me to know, am I being clear or am I being completely out in left field? So share a little bit of what you've been hearing. And maybe if if you're willing, maybe share, maybe there's something God's asking you to exchange. Maybe he's asking to let go of that comfort or let go of that guilt and that shame or something's changing in your heart that that you're desiring to know him more. And so we're going to have that conversation in the Facebook community page because it's it's a bit more private. So it's a bit more safe and that secure that way. It's not being broadcast all over the Internet. But um, but if you're not yet part of the Facebook community page, then just go to our main Facebook page and find the, the communities under the group section and just ask to join and someone will, will uh, make that possible for you. But join us there in that conversation. Let's, let's keep it going because um, I don't want it just to end here. All right, let me pray. Father, we thank you for what you've done. We thank you for how you used the Apostle Paul. And we get to now study his his words, study his teachings. But it gets to bring transformation to our lives today. So thank you, Lord, for how you're going to, to change how we see ourselves, to change how we interact with one another as we begin to discover who we are in you, these new creations because of the cross, and who you are in us through the person of the Holy Spirit, expressing His life through us. In your name we pray. Amen. God bless you, new life. We'll see you soon.